The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Total authority or totally unhinged? Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, April 16th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. This may not mean much at the moment to the loved ones of the 31,000 Americans who've died from the coronavirus or to the more than 20 million among us who are suddenly unemployed. But because this is about whether American democracy lives or dies, it must first be said that Donald Trump declared again this week that as president, he can do anything he wants. He proclaimed total authority on Monday, saying he calls the shots when it comes to deciding when to reopen the country. There is no legal or constitutional support for that claim. None. And in a naked political threat, he said that if any governor refuses to reopen on his orders, quote, I would like to see that person run for re-election. Monday's so-called coronavirus briefing was a televised tantrum, the likes of which had never been seen before in this country. Even some of his most ardent Republican supporters in Congress are wishing out loud that he would shut up and step away from the microphone. Although the real source of Trump's anger Monday was media coverage of his failures in this crisis and Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Joe Biden, this is what prompted his Monday meltdown. Governors on both coasts had banded together to decide for themselves when to reopen after hearing Trump say he was shooting for May 1st, again against the advice of public health experts. Trump insisted it's his decision to make. Later, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said Trump was, quote, acting like a king, adding, you don't become a king because of a national emergency. We don't have a king, said Cuomo. We have an elected president. And Cuomo said he would take the administration to court if the president pushes businesses to reopen before it's safe to do so. In a tweet, Trump compared the pushback by governors to a mutiny, and he added a veiled threat to punish the mutineers. He wrote, a good old-fashioned mutiny is exciting and invigorating, especially when the mutineers need so much from the captain. Too easy, added Trump, implying he'd outsmarted them all by being a fan of the 1962 film Mutiny on the Bounty. But the pushback to Trump's claim of authoritarian power came not just from governors, but from prominent members of both political parties and constitutional scholars. The Washington Post reports that Trump has spoken with his advisors outside the White House about reopening the country even sooner, before May 1st. A week ago today, Trump said opening very, 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 very soon. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says he hopes businesses can come back next month and Attorney General Bill Barr called the stay-at-home orders excessively harsh. He used the word draconian. And that brings us back to the question, who is in charge here? The president, even with his emergency powers, doesn't have legal or constitutional authority to reopen the country. Governors across the country, on the advice of the CDC, have issued legal orders to shut down businesses and only the governors have the power to open them again. As that fact became more known and understood, more widely discussed, Trump cut loose on Twitter to say he's the decider. Let it be fully understood, he had said with his thumbs, it is the decision of the president and for many good reasons. Reasons or not, the Constitution says public health is almost exclusively a job for the states and he lacks the authority to overturn a legal gubernatorial order without permission from Congress. Trump said he didn't believe in ordering reluctant governors to shut down their states, but he was bound and determined to order them to reopen. 
He never ordered the country closed, but he wants to issue an order that it reopen. He said he didn't have the authority to close the country and then claimed only he has the authority to open it up. And although he lacks any legal authority here, he still does have the bully pulpit of the presidency and his daily TV show and his Twitter account with its millions of misinformed followers. By nightfall, Trump backed off his claim of absolute power, but by then he'd already reminded everyone of what's in his heart. By nightfall on Tuesday, Trump admitted that it would be the governors who would make the call on when to reopen and how. But to save face and some of his absolute power, Trump said the governor's plans would have to be approved or authorized by him. There's no legal basis for that either, so he included another threat. The governors are going to do a good job, said Trump, and if they don't do a good job, he said, we're going to come down on them very hard. Trump's reference to mutiny on the bounty had dissolved into the plot of another classic movie, The Cane Mutiny, in which a power-mad captain loses his mind. Even CNN staged a pushback on Monday's rage-filled press briefing. Its banners across the bottom of the screen, chyrons as they're called, read, Trump refuses to acknowledge any mistakes. Trump uses task force briefing to try to rewrite history on coronavirus response. Trump melts down in angry response to reports he ignored virus warnings. And angry Trump turns briefing into propaganda session. Speaking truth to power is one of the primary functions of a free press, but there is nothing but truth in those CNN chyrons. Trump did try to rewrite history, tried to contradict what you will be hearing in a few moments from New York Times reporters who investigated the timeline of Trump's denial, grief, and acceptance. He saved the anger for Monday after that Times article dropped and after the two men he hoped would divide Democratic voters this fall had united to defeat him. Trump did claim that he had made no mistake, saying, everything I did was right, and adding, the story in the New York Times is a total fake. It's a fake newspaper, and they write fake stories, and someday, hopefully in five years when I'm not here, those papers are all going to go out of business because nobody's going to read them, end quote. In other news, Trump has finally said he'll be gone in five years after previous musings that he might stick around longer. Based on his mishandling of this crisis and his display of the opposite of calm leadership, and now running against Joe Biden, backed by Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Barack Obama, he may be gone much sooner than that. The CNN chyrons on Monday were accurate and truthful. Trump did try to rewrite history on that day, presenting a misleading propaganda video that to most observers looked like a badly edited campaign ad. It was a montage of video clips of doctors and media early on seeming to downplay the virus. That montage was juxtaposed with clips of him declaring a national emergency and praise from Democratic governors for providing federal assistance. Of course the governors praised him. They knew it was the only way to get essential medical equipment from a president who wanted a favor, though. The president who had punished states whose governors he doesn't like while lavishing support on the governors he does. It was a campaign propaganda video produced on government equipment by government employees and played in the White House press briefing room at taxpayers' expense and in violation of campaign laws, something no president had ever dared to do. It was a video about him at a time when miles of cars are backed up on roads leading to food banks across the country. But as always, it was about him. The video also painted a distorted view of reality, and reporters challenged it head on. 
The same day that Trump had again declared total authority, the news media stood up to him as it had never before. When he used his total authority line, CNN's Caitlin Collins spoke up, quote, that's not true. Who told you that? Trump sputtered, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write up papers on this. Has any governor agreed you have that authority? Asked Collins. I haven't asked anybody, snapped Trump, continuing, you know why? Because I don't have to. The reporter pressed on, asking, who told you the president has total authority? Enough, said Trump. In an explosive news conference that included the usual disinformation, including that governors have gotten what they need to fight the pandemic and that, quote, no one who has needed a ventilator has not gotten a ventilator. He also falsely claimed he'd inherited obsolete tests for the virus from the Obama administration. But this disease did not exist during the Obama administration. Therefore, it would have been impossible to have such a test at the ready. The first round of tests were created during and by the Trump administration, and they were faulty. But Trump's lies, often labeled false and misleading statements, are something to which we have literally grown too accustomed. The Washington Post's fact-checker now lists more than 18,000 of them since the start of his presidency. It counts more than 350 just on the subject of coronavirus between January 19th and April 3rd of this year. Many of those lies have centered around an untested and potentially deadly drug cocktail, creating false hope among those who believe the things he says. And many of Trump's lies are repeated by or more often originate from the so-called Fox News Channel. Fox is among the forces pushing Trump to reopen the country. In Laura Ingram's words, we cannot deny our people their basic freedoms any longer. It was a month ago this week that Trump held a Rose Garden news conference in which he promised testing sites at Walmarts and Walgreens and CVS and Target stores across the country. It was a month ago that Vice President Mike Pence promised 4 million tests by mid-March. It is now mid-April, and we've barely done over 3 million tests, not 4, and testing reportedly dropped in the U.S. this past week by 30%. A lie because it has not come to pass. Walmart has two testing sites, one in Chicago, the other in Arkansas. Walgreens has two, both in Chicago. CVS has four locations for testing. Altogether, not enough sites to serve a town, much less a nation. It was a month ago this week Trump promised a nationwide Google website for screening potential patients and directing them to that non-existent network of testing sites. Now, the website never materialized except on a small scale in five counties in California. Trump is not bothered by these broken promises. Never mind what he promised, it's the state's responsibility, he says. We can't be thinking about a Walmart parking lot that's 2,000 miles away, said Trump this week, adding, but a governor can. There would be no nationwide website as promised, no widespread testing sites, and there would obviously be no effort to fix that or explain why it never happened. There would only be the broken promises also known as lies. Also, during his Monday meltdown, CBS reporter Paula Reed asked Trump what he did about the pandemic in the month of February, even though she knows the answer includes playing six rounds of golf, holding eight campaign rallies, and making claims that the virus was being shut down, that it's under control, that it'll go away, that we're very close to a vaccine, that the cases would soon be down to zero, and that it would miraculously disappear. Still, reporter Paula Reed asked what he'd done about the pandemic throughout February. You didn't use it to prepare hospitals, she correctly pointed out. You didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right now, tens of thousands of Americans are dead. 
How is this newsreel or this rant, she asked, supposed to make people feel confident? The only answer he could muster was that he put travel restrictions on China, which, by the way, were ineffective. He claimed he was the first national leader to do so. He was the 38th. By one count, he was the 50th nation leader to restrict travel from China, and he did so only on a very limited basis. Otherwise, he failed to answer Paula Reed's question, but instead attacked the reporter. You're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that, replied Trump. He went on. You know you're a fake. Your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. That's why you have a lower approval rating than you've probably ever had before, times three. In truth, TV network ratings, even at CBS, are higher than they've been in decades. I'm more popular than you times a million, shouted the schoolyard bully, even though the other kids knew it wasn't true. Trump's total authority had withered and a total madness. Public health experts agree that the country should only reopen for business after these six things have been accomplished, according to the World Health Organization and other public health experts. We need to continue the lockdown until the spread of the disease is under control. Once that's accomplished, we'll need at least two more weeks because the virus has a two-week incubation period. We'll need a wide-scale testing effort to find out who's infected. As of today, only about 2% of the population has been, and many who most need the tests haven't been able to get them. Trump has said he sees no need for what he calls full testing. We need a tracking system so we know who has the disease and who they've had contact with. We also need to know who's had it and who is now immune to it. Data, say the experts, is the only way to make smart decisions about public health. Only the immune should be allowed to return to work and we all need to be educated about what will be the new normal for our safety. We need to plan to respond in case infections and deaths spike again after people go back to work. We need a plan for its possible resurgence in the fall during flu season. We need a plan for getting medical supplies to the hot spots as they shift from one part of the country to another so that states don't have to outbid each other to get them. Even the model used by the White House says deaths can be kept to under 61,000 if the nation stays shut down through the month of May. And yet the Post reports Trump repeatedly asked his aides, when can we reopen? Are we there yet? History can teach us a lot about this issue. As restlessness built over the shutdowns back then with people eager to get back to work, Several U.S. cities that were past their peaks reopened too soon during the 1918 flu pandemic. The result was an infection curve with two humps instead of one. The second as bad or worse than the first. They hadn't given the curve time to flatten. Without our current stay-at-home and distancing guidelines and without testing, the death toll in the U.S. from COVID-19 could have been 300,000 people. With what we have now, it could be 200,000 people. With stricter guidelines and sooner, it could have been many fewer people. CDC Director Robert Redfield says the reopening will have to occur county by county. It's got to be data-driven, he says. Lifting the guidelines now, say the experts, would create a second hump in July just as happened in 1918. The New York Times reported that Trump is unlikely to extend the guidelines beyond May 1st for at least parts of the country. With the economy still top of mind, he believes that a sudden reopening will turn the economy into a rocket ship. 
But with the careful, gradual reopening proposed by others and with Americans still worried about their safety when returning to work, the economy is more likely to hop than it is to launch skyward. People are not likely to go rushing back onto subways, airplanes, or convention halls as if someone had flipped a switch to make it okay. The Federal Reserve says it may take a year and a half for the economy to get back up to speed. The Washington Post reports Trump's own advisors are telling him it would be better if he did put the responsibility of reopening on the governors. Still, even with that advice, Trump had rushed to Twitter over the weekend to say he's the decider, only to walk it back later in another example of the opposite of leadership. In truth, it will be the people who decide, the parents and the workers, when it's safe enough to get back on the bus or the subway or into a crowded workplace or classroom. It may not matter what Trump does or doesn't do. The governors of six East Coast states say they will plan and decide together when to lift restrictions in their regions. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Earlier, the West Coast states of California, Washington, and Oregon banded together to say they will coordinate their decisions as well, despite Trump's assertion that he's the decider. California Governor Gavin Newsom said his coalition states would make their decisions based on facts, evidence, and science. He did not mention the economy. Health professionals say it's too early to throw open the country, especially since U.S. infections have not yet peaked. But for government officials, it is not too early to talk about how that might happen and when. California's recovery plan looks very much like the World Health Organization's recommendations. Among them... Community testing and isolating those who've been exposed or test positive. New measures to protect from infection the people most at risk, the elderly and the immune compromised. Equipping hospitals to handle the still-to-come surge of patients in California. Therapeutic drugs to at least treat the symptoms of COVID-19. And reconfiguring schools and businesses for social distancing, keeping students and workers less tightly packed. And these will likely be the guidelines for reopening in California's teammates, Washington and Oregon. It may be a model for the rest of the country. Golden State Governor Gavin Newsom is advising Californians that the world they return to will be substantially different than the one they left behind at the start of the shutdown. He's giving West Coasters and perhaps the rest of us a heads up to prepare ourselves for a new normal. What Newsom didn't say is when these things might happen. Our leadership in this crisis has come from many of our governors, not the president. The East Coast states have benefited from the leadership first demonstrated by the West Coast, even though it gets less coverage, being in a time zone that runs three hours behind the East Coast where the big media outlets are headquartered nearly 3,000 miles away. We may see Cuomo on TV the most, but the first to lead included Washington State's Jay Ensley, Oregon's Kate Brown, and California's Gavin Newsom. While New York had 44 deaths per 100,000, California had two. And yet there is respect on each coast for the other. But New York's Cuomo was so real on camera, captivating and human, he became the leader among leaders. Together, these governors have saved thousands of lives and they've pledged to share medical equipment and together they will decide when to reopen, how to reopen, and by how much. The governors are the deciders and the leaders. While the White House lacks several important plans, the states already have their plans in place, or at least in development. Knowing they would not get help from the president, the governors ramped up the testing, began tracing the cases to track the spread to help them make better decisions about public policy. What they need now from the feds is funding. 
The White House has about four task forces on coronavirus now, including one for reopening the country. Trump declared Monday a decision will be made shortly on when and how to reopen at least parts of the country, even though parts of it never closed. Unlike Governor Newsom, Trump wants hard and fast dates on the calendar. Even after admitting it wasn't his call after all, Trump announced Tuesday that the plans to reopen the country are close to being finalized. He said he'd be calling all 50 governors to give them, quote, a very powerful reopening plan that would include specific dates and times. He says about 20 states have avoided the crushing outbreak suffered elsewhere and indicated they could reopen as soon as May 1st. He actually said sooner than May, which Dr. Fauci later had to walk back. The Washington Post got a peek at a plan to reopen the country from FEMA and the CDC, two of the eight plans now in development at the federal level. The Post got hold of a set of proposed guidelines for each state in three phases. Phase 1, May 1st, educating citizens to prepare them for a new way of life to protect us from the virus until a vaccine's found. Phase 2, May 15th, boosting the manufacture of test kits, PPEs, and more emergency funding. Phase 3, whose only date is not before May 1st, begins to reopen daycares, K-12 schools, and locals-only summer camps and workplaces. All three phases would be monitored for their effectiveness and safety. The 36-page document obtained by the Washington Post includes a warning that this plan entails, quote, a significant risk of resurgence of the virus. The CDC and FEMA have chosen their criteria for anything to reopen. The incidence of infection must be genuinely low. An effective monitoring system must be in place to watch for that resurgence. That hospitals are ready to react robustly to any number of COVID-19 patients with the ability to expand their facilities as needed. And enough hospital beds and doctors and nurses that can be assembled quickly to deal with a resurgence. Now about this new normal. As Governor Newsom explained it, your first restaurant outings may involve a server who's wearing a face mask and latex gloves. You may get your temperature taken going into any public place. That's just two examples. L.A.'s mayor says concerts, sporting events, and other big gatherings won't likely return until sometime next year, if then. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio echoed that. He's saying that big public gatherings are, quote, one of the last things we bring back online. And a report out Tuesday projects that unless there's a vaccine widely administered fairly quickly, some social distancing, including stay-at-home orders, may have to continue into 2022. The race for a vaccine continues on multiple fronts at a breakneck pace, but we're not there yet. We still don't know for certain if we become immune from the virus or for how long, but we're getting closer and while the Harvard School of Public Health is talking 2022, the White House has been saying the pandemic could disappear this summer. The Harvard team says its projections show that the virus would come roaring back and quickly when restrictions are lifted. It says the virus could resurge in 2024. The Harvard researchers say they realize that too much social distancing can hurt us educationally, economically, and socially. But without a vaccine, they say it's one of our most powerful weapons now against COVID-19. America's spy network caught wind of an outbreak of respiratory illness in China back in November, but committed nothing to paper at the time because intelligence officers weren't sure what to make of it. 
Intelligence officials started documenting the outbreak in December, and on January 6th, the same day the Senate acquitted Donald John Trump of the impeachment charges against him, U.S. intel passed along what it had learned to the White House National Security Council. By mid-January, the virus had escaped China and circled the globe. As that month progressed, the NSC's biodefense people began sounding alarms about what was happening in Wuhan, China, and urging White House officials to ponder how they might quarantine a city the size of, say, Chicago. That was the start of a thread of emails now known as the Red Dawn memos that circulated in late January. In those emails, professors, doctors, specialists, and even some Trump administration officials worried in print about the absence of an aggressive defense against the virus. They expressed anger about the lack of testing and warned government officials in January that the virus was being spread by people with absolutely no symptoms. As one VA doctor wrote, we have a relatively narrow window and we are flying blind. Anyway, you cut it, he said, this is going to be bad. It got the attention of the anti-China contingent among Trump's advisors, but the U.S. was negotiating a trade deal with China at the time, so their warnings fell on deaf ears. And fresh off impeachment, Trump was more suspicious than ever of what he perceives as a deep state underground in the federal government. More than ever, Trump was disinclined to listen to experienced government officials. As reported here last week, the president was told about the pending pandemic in an emphatic email from one of those anti-China hawks, economic advisor Peter Navarro. Trump says he didn't see the January 29th memo and didn't look for it. But aides to Trump tell the New York Times they spoke with him about the memo at the time and learned at the time that he was unhappy that Navarro had put all that stuff in writing. Health Secretary Alex Azar called Trump the day after Navarro's memo with his second warning in two weeks. Trump took the call on Air Force One as he hopscotched the Midwest for some more of his campaign rallies. He told Azar he was being an alarmist. The virus continued to spread across the U.S. and with virtually no resistance throughout the months of February and half of March. As documented here last week, the CDC tried to get through to Trump, we now know it wanted him to consider school closings and social distancing and stay-at-home orders. The New York Times reported this week that top immunologist Anthony Fauci and others recommended to Trump that he implement social distancing in February. Fauci confirmed that on CNN Sunday, saying, We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it's not. But he also said, obviously, you could say that if you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives adding no one's going to deny that. And he said there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. There still is. Trump this week retweeted the hashtag fire Fauci. And although the president did not and probably won't fire Fauci, it was apparently necessary for Fauci to partially walk back his comments when he was called to testify in Trump's Monday meltdown TV show saying his comments were hypothetical. Unable to get Trump's attention in February, officials at the CDC took it upon themselves to warn the public. That turned out to be a tactical error, at least as it concerns handling Trump, who was as angry as he had ever been. When the stock market tanked on that announcement from the CDC in the third week of February, Trump exploded with anger, insisting he hadn't been consulted before the warning was made public. One of the first American casualties of the virus was the stock market, 
and jobs numbers that Trump saw as his best shot at getting reelected. In his anger, Trump pushed aside Health Secretary Alex Azar and put Pence in charge. But Pence and everyone else on the new coronavirus task force knew they had to proceed carefully so they would not make the president angry again. Pence's first instruction to his task force was no more alarmist messages. On February 21st, Trump told a red hat rally, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. On February 25th, Trump called it a problem that is going to go away and we're very close to a vaccine. The next day, he said that within a couple of days, the number of U.S. cases would, quote, going to be close to zero. And the day after that, he said, like a miracle, it's going to disappear. And all of that was just seven weeks ago, the same seven weeks in which the virus became a nationwide pandemic with advance warning. Despite weeks of warnings, Trump called the virus an unforeseen problem that came out of nowhere. He said that on March 6th. Nobody ever thought it would be a problem, he said on March 11th. And it's something nobody expected, he said on March 14th. Even in his disastrous Oval Office address on March 11th, Trump failed to call for school closings and social distancing, the economy and his re-election chances still at the top of his mind. It was at about that time that government health experts learned the virus could be spread by people with no symptoms, people who didn't know they were infected. Quoting a researcher at the Georgia Institute of Technology at the time, people are carrying the virus everywhere. It would be another three weeks before Trump got on board with the experts, finally issuing guidelines for social distancing and staying home, but only guidelines, no orders, no shutdowns. It was during those three weeks that health officials presented Trump with a plan to mitigate the pandemic in the U.S., but the Times reports resistance from some of Trump's advisors and the president himself. Trump had been listening to an investment executive and to his Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, both of whom warned the president about how a shutdown could crush the stock market. It was an exasperated national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, who told Mnuchin that the economy was about to be destroyed with or without a shutdown. Seven weeks went by between the diagnosis of the first American on U.S. soil to test positive for the virus and the middle of March when Trump finally acted. In the three weeks leading up to March 16th, the number of U.S. cases that had stood at 15 did not fall to zero. They ballooned to 4,226. The person who finally got through to Trump was the soft-spoken Dr. Deborah Burks, who's aces at the kind of simple charts that Trump likes. Unlike his male advisors, Trump never got irritated with Burks. He even referred to her as elegant. And when it all finally soaked in in the middle of March, six weeks into the pandemic, that is when a shell-shocked Donald Trump finally agreed to recommend social distancing and staying home, even knowing that it would cripple that precious economy. Aides describe a president who'd momentarily lost his swagger. They tell the Times he seemed subdued and baffled at how things had gotten to this point. He got his swagger back when he began rewriting the history of nearly everything you have just heard described. The swagger was definitely back when he declared that he, quote, felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic, despite saying that it was something nobody expected just days before that claim. The daily briefings that became his new TV show helped boost his swagger, and he began to rewrite history. He repeated his new version of events in that unhinged TV appearance on Monday. Trump has insisted it was his job to be a cheerleader for the country, not the harbinger of gloom and doom. 
But along with impeachment, Trump's lack of acceptance of responsibility and his lack of response to the coming crisis are now part of his legacy. Lindsey Graham says he told Trump he's no longer running for re-election against Joe Biden, that he is instead running against the virus. As March came to a close, he continued to be shaken by the collapsed economy and mystified about why his administration was getting the blame in the news media instead of the governor's. He handled the news media in his usual way, attacking it as the fake news. For the economy, he looked to reopening the country on Easter. The New York Post reports it was Kellyanne Conway who broke the news to Trump that, according to Pence's task force, the country could not be reopened at Easter and that he would probably be blamed for every single death that occurred after that holiday. By Easter, 21,000 Americans had died and well over a half million were known to be infected, with only 1% of the population tested, less than 1% at the time, in fact. By Easter, Stanley Chera had died of COVID-19, He's the friend to whom Trump had referred, a fellow real estate developer who was also a billionaire campaign donor. Still, even though Trump had again said the wrong thing, he did the more correct thing, namely allowing the country to remain mostly shut down through Easter. He would still not issue the recommended national shutdown, but he would instead leave things as they are for now. But the administration's 30-day stay-home and distancing guidelines are set to run out in about two weeks, on April 30th, with the country reopening on May 1st under his plan. The head of the FDA, however, says, I think it's just too early for us to say whether May 1st is that date. Trump has called the decision whether to extend the guidelines the biggest he's ever had to make, especially since he and others in his administration have been champing at the bit to reopen the economy. Public health officials, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, worry that a sudden reopening of the whole country would mean a resurgence of the disease that would take even more lives. Fauci prefers what he calls a rolling re-entry in which regions would reopen depending on the conditions there. The head of the Institute for Health Metrics agrees, saying that lifting all the restrictions on May 1st would mean that, quote, by July or August we could be back in the same situation we are now. I fear that if we open up too early, says New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, we could be pouring gasoline on the fire. He told CNN that the house is already on fire and that job number one is to put the fire out. Yesterday, in a conference call with business leaders, Trump was told that American business should not and must not reopen, that employees must not return to work until widespread coronavirus testing is ramped up. That's the advice of the business leaders. The New York Times reports today that public health officials insist Trump should not reopen the country until there are enough tests to do it safely. The tests that we were promised a month ago that are now actually diminishing in number. Nevertheless, Trump says he will announce guidelines for states to reopen the country later today. When Dr. Fauci confirmed this week that Trump had ignored his warnings in February, Trump exploded on Twitter. He retweeted a post from a Republican congressional candidate who had included the hashtag FireFauci. The White House later said Trump had no such intentions. In the tweet, though, Trump aimed his own words at journalists. Sorry, fake news. I banned China long before people spoke up. Trump did not ban China. He limited travel by blocking foreign nationals who had been in China since February 2nd. In spite of that policy, 
40,000 people came into the U.S. from China after his order, and they continue to come. There was no ban. It was all he did until mid-March, and he did it in the midst of those Chinese trade talks, perhaps as leverage. He certainly did it against the advice of health experts, including Dr. Fauci, who worried the effect of those travel restrictions might have on studying the disease and on getting experts and equipment into the U.S. Trump's cheerleading, though, continued on Twitter over the weekend, writing, for the first time in history, there is a fully signed presidential disaster declaration for all 50 states. We are winning. 50 disaster declarations equals winning. Along with a flurry of tweets against China, the World Health Organization, President Obama, Congress, the governors, and Democrats in general, and, of course, the news media. On Tuesday of this week, Trump announced he was cutting off U.S. funding to the United Nations World Health Organization for 60 to 90 days of investigation. Trump is accusing the WHO of the very accusations he is facing, mismanaging the crisis and covering up its spread. Trump had already cut the U.S. contribution to that body in half by $65 million. Now he was cutting it off completely, at least for a while. It's another illegal, impeachable act, withholding money already approved by Congress, just as he had done with Ukraine, the subject of his impeachment. In the meantime, Trump has found another scapegoat for his own failures. He blames the WHO for not banning travel from China sooner than it did. Trump accused the WHO of being soft on China when it was he who tweeted on January 24th, China's been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. China's failure to acknowledge and respond to the virus was epic, and the WHO had made its share of mistakes. But Trump has long groused about how the U.S. pays so much more into the organization than other countries. Now he has a justification to cut off that money against the advice of his own advisors and to move the focus of blame elsewhere, starving the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. The leaders of other nations have expressed outrage, one calling it a crime against humanity. Bill Gates, who's given a good deal of his fortune to support the WHO, calls Trump's move as bad as it sounds. If anything got under the skin of Salon.com's Bob Seska this week, it was that whole total authority thing. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. George W. Bush once said, if this were a dictatorship, it'd be a heck of a lot easier as long as I'm the dictator. He was joking, even though presidents, irrespective of a party, should never joke about being a dictator. Not only have dictatorships precipitated mass atrocities and crimes against humanity, but it goes without saying that it also runs completely anathema to the entire point of the United States. When Donald Trump announced the other day that he possesses total power, he wasn't joking. When he said, quote, when somebody's president of the United States, the authority is total. He was deadly serious. Mike Pence added that Trump has plenary powers during this national emergency. Then on Wednesday, Trump announced that he would force both chambers of Congress into recess, something about his cabinet vacancies and judicial nominees, I think. He also noted on Wednesday that he can punish governors who don't end stay-at-home orders. First of all, I'm fairly certain Trump's disciples don't know what plenary means. 
Beyond that, it's unclear who planted both of these cockamamie ideas into his wildly scattered head, but he doesn't actually possess the powers of a dictator over Congress or anyone else. Furthermore, here's something you might be additionally relieved to hear. He's too gutless to actually use those powers if he even had them. While he's tethering himself to the largely debunked unitary executive theory, suggesting the president has constitutionally backed powers over the other two branches of government, he won't go there because ultimately Trump is a coward. At the very least, he might have an understanding of what happens when national leaders attempt to seize that kind of power. It doesn't always end well. See also Hitler and Mussolini. The president talks a big game. In fact, his entire career has been built on talking a big game. I'm not breaking any news when I observe that Trump is a world-class bullshitter. Indeed, the relative ho-hum reaction to Trump's pronouncements seemed to suggest few actually took him seriously. The problem, however, comes in the form of 60 million or so Americans, probably fewer now, who not only believe Trump's crapola on a stick, whatever it might be, but who are also absolutely fine with a dictator, just as long as it's their dictator. In other words, it's their political hero who's seizing the power, so he must be a benevolent dictator, making everything fine and dandy. We're talking about a political demographic that once claimed to support the twin concepts of small government and states' rights, each of which contradict the notion of a totalitarian ruler, an omnipotent executive whose actions overrule both the states and the entirety of the federal government, all branches. Do they even realize that a unitary executive and therefore autocratic rule over Congress, the courts, and especially state governments is the exact opposite of small government and state-level autonomy? Not a chance. With little regard for consistency, it's no wonder hundreds of them turned out for protests on Wednesday, rebuking stay-at-home orders and insisting that governors from Mike DeWine in Ohio to Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan allow businesses to reopen. In Lansing, Michigan, for example, protesters gathered in front of the state capitol building, barely pretending to exercise social distancing while others lined up in their cars, clearly afraid of interacting with a large crowd risking transmission of the COVID-19 virus. The protesters were obviously concerned they'd be infected, yet their protests sought to reopen restaurants, retail stores, and businesses where, yeah, people will be infected, with around a third or more of those people succumbing to the symptoms of the virus. They were literally illustrating by social distancing why their protests were idiotic. Sure, red hats can't buy fertilizer for their lawns. They can't hang out in bars and restaurants as they did a month ago. If they're protesting, they should stay far away from other people. Why? Because they'll get it. Then they'll transmit the virus to other people and so on. All told, the point of the protest was betrayed by how the protest was carried out. Somewhere along the line, chaos agents like Roger Ailes and Steve Bannon got it into their bloated heads that there's an untapped demographic out there. American voters who can be easily manipulated into acting against their own best interests. Today, this demographic forms the base of the Republican Party. Sure, it doesn't make any sense for middle-class earners to support politicians who only cut taxes for the wealthiest Americans, but now the gap between ideology and reason is even more chasmic and easier to observe. American men and women who think they should be allowed to be infected, then to infect others, but yet they refuse to risk their own health in the process of asking for that return to normal. 
As if that's not creepy enough, it's been made clear to the world this week that half of the voting population here, give or take, would be entirely welcoming of an autocratic ruler. And the ruler they somehow landed upon, at least for now, is the cartoonish weirdo from a network reality show. The absence of logic is mind-boggling to consider, but what they've manifested here is still immensely dangerous. A wide-open door for a future character who's smarter and more clever than Trump to slither onto the national stage thanks to Trump, convincing all of these deeply confused and gullible people that dictatorship is fine just as long as their guy is the dictator. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. The entire world is about to experience the worst recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s and early 40s. The 2008 financial crisis will look like a blip on the timeline. These are the predictions of the International Monetary Fund, which came forth with this gloomy prediction on Tuesday. The IMF forecast is quite specific. It predicts a worldwide rebound next year, but not until after the U.S. will take a hit nearly twice as hard as the world average. The IMF projects that the world economy will shrink a dramatic 3% this year, but the U.S. loss will be 5.9%. It expects the U.S. to mostly recover in 2021 with a 4.7% growth rate. But not even the IMF can clearly see our economic future, noting its forecast is blurred by, quote, extreme uncertainty. The federal stimulus checks for people without electronic deposit will be mailed out in a couple of weeks, delayed by a few days, now that it's been decided that Donald Trump's name will be added onto the memo line of those checks. His name cannot go onto the signature line because he isn't authorized to sign it. Still, nothing like this has ever happened before either. The checks are normally signed by a faceless civil servant, as will be the case this time. Trump made his request that his name be on the check of Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, and Mnuchin obviously complied with Election Day just six months away. Those who file electronically, 80% of us, will never see the president's name thanks to direct deposit. The first stimulus payments went into people's bank accounts this week with layoffs in numbers we have not seen since the Great Depression. Another 5.2 million people filed for unemployment last week, bringing the total number of jobs lost in this crisis to well over 22 million. J.P. Morgan Chase is predicting a 20% unemployment rate before things improve, and it's likely to get worse. A Washington Post business writer reports that more than 2,100 cities are expecting to run short on cash this year, forcing them to cut services and lay off workers. Local governments employ 93 million people nationwide, and their mayors are begging Washington for more aid to keep the wheels from coming off so they can keep providing basic services like your trash pickup. Nearly 90% of the cities surveyed are now expecting budget shortfalls and hundreds of towns and cities are talking layoffs. The same appears to be true of states. Andrew Cuomo and Maryland's Larry Hogan this week asking Congress for a half trillion dollars to stabilize state budgets. Some Americans have launched GoFundMe pages to try to get by. Others are eating their savings accounts, using their savings to pay bills and buy groceries. 
The Depression-era breadlines are back in the form of miles-long lines of cars waiting for a box of basics from the local food bank. While food banks scramble for much-needed food, farmers are plowing under crops of corn, beans, strawberries, tomatoes, and cabbages, dumping millions of gallons of milk into manure pits every day and burying tons of onions that will never make it to market or to food banks. Just one hatchery is now smashing three-quarters of a million chicken eggs every day. Chicken ranchers have talked about euthanizing chickens rather than selling them at a loss. With schools, restaurants, and hotels closed, American farmers have lost much of their customer base, so tens of millions of pounds of food are going to waste. As the onion farmer put it, people don't make onion rings at home. Starbucks no longer needs its usual order of 13,000 gallons of milk per day, and cows have to be milked whether anyone drinks it or not. Many farmers are donating the surplus to food banks and Meals on Wheels, but those organizations only have so many refrigerators, so they only have so much room. And neither the farmer nor the food bank can afford the harvesting, processing, and transportation of food from field to table. The right government program, if it existed, could likely address these logistical problems. Our food supply chain has been disrupted, my local fish market now sells onions, potatoes, chicken, beef, and more. Panera Bread is selling fruits, vegetables, dairy, and, of course, bread. Most of the Denny's restaurants on the western seaboard are selling sausage, eggs, rolls, diced onions, and more. Most of the Subway sandwich shops in Southern California are selling pickles, pastrami, and shredded mozzarella. But some grocery shelves are full and some are empty. That's because we stocked up when the pandemic news first hit and began cooking at home. That took the food industry by surprise as much of its work is aimed at stores and restaurants. Most grocery shoppers don't want the 50-pound bag of potatoes that were made for restaurants, and the potato man has no way to retool to make smaller bags. We're having trouble finding canned tuna, ground beef, and bread, and flour and yeast for making our own bread. Meat packing houses have closed. As many Americans can no longer afford to bring home the bacon, there is less bacon to bring home. Smithfield has shut down its pork processing plant after well over 600 of its workers tested positive for the virus. The workers say they were afforded no social distancing from their co-workers and denied protective gear. As farmers and others in our food supply chain fall ill from COVID-19, the food chain is likely to become even more disrupted. Now, about that Smithfield pork plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sioux Falls is not just the home of Smithfield. It's the city in South Dakota that's the epicenter of that state's coronavirus outbreak. Paul Tenhaken, who's the mayor of Sioux Falls, says a shelter-in-place order is needed now. It is needed today. But Republican Governor Kristi Noem says it's not up to governments to decide whether South Dakotans can, quote, exercise their right to work, worship, and play, or to even stay home. Noam says she believes that's for an individual to decide that she would not follow this herd mentality, as she called it, and that she would not implement a stay-home order or even allow one to go into effect. Not even in Sioux Falls, the coronavirus capital of South Dakota, where its biggest employer and the producer of 5% of the nation's meat has had to shut down because well over 600 of its workers are infected. Echoing another contrarian Republican governor, Noam has said, South Dakota is not New York City. She's right, of course, except that Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is one of the biggest clusters of coronavirus cases in the world, and it is beginning to have New York City-sized problems in its hospitals. 
It, ha- it has just surpassed Chicago's Cook County Jail as one of the nation's hottest hotspots, as well as the USS Roosevelt, where hundreds of sailors are sick and one has died. It's an exciting day, said Governor Nome, not because she'd changed her mind and decided to save lives, but because she had just gotten off the phone with Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner, can you imagine? It's an exciting day, she beamed as she quoted him again and again. The restaurants in Sioux Falls are now takeout only, but you can still get a table in the suburbs. As one of the nation's obstructionist Republican governors, Christy Nome proudly governs one of the weak spots in our nation's defense against the spread and respread of this virus. And in Sioux Falls, that weak spot has sprung a leak. In Florida, where Republican Governor Ron DeSantis was slow to issue a safer at-home order and one that allows for church services, his voice of science got kicked out of a cabinet meeting this week. After the state surgeon general dared to say on camera that social distancing needs to continue until there's a vaccine and that a vaccine is still a year or so away, DeSantis had his communications director escort the Florida surgeon general out of the room. The communications director told Newsweek she was just telling the doctor he had a meeting he needed to get to. DeSantis' popularity in Florida has dropped sharply after waiting until Florida had nearly 8,000 cases before issuing any orders. Other states had cried uncle at the 5,000 mark. He'd been reluctant to shut down the beaches, lest he hurt the profitability of this year's spring break. He's talked about reopening at least some of Florida's schools just weeks from now. DeSantis says correctly that children are not as susceptible to this illness, but he forgets that they are terrific carriers of the virus. It's the DeSantis administration that's ruled that TV pro wrestling is an essential service. The Florida governor's office has greenlighted resuming production of WWE's live broadcast from Orlando so long as the arena is closed to the general public. DeSantis let World Wrestling Entertainment explain it in a written statement that reads, We believe it is more important than ever to provide people with a diversion from these hard times. We are producing on a closed set with only essential personnel in attendance following appropriate guidelines while taking additional precautions to ensure the health and wellness of our performers and staff, end quote. The wife of World Wrestling CEO Vince McMahon is Linda McMahon, who has a super PAC known to be generous to Republican candidates. I can confirm the Orlando Weekly report that McMahon's Super PAC pledged to spend $18.5 million on TV ads backing Trump from Labor Day to Election Day. She made that pledge on the same day DeSantis lifted the order on the WWE. And WWE CEO Vince McMahon is now on the President's Business Advisory Council for reopening the country. We are going to be the first shopping center that opens in North America, are the words proudly spoken by Nebraska Crossing owner Rod Yates. Nebraska Crossing is a very large mall that attracts shoppers from out of state, but the owner of Nebraska Crossing is hoping to reopen the mall one week from tomorrow, on April 24th. He's excitedly purchased hundreds of plexiglass shields for the clerks and infrared thermometers to take the temperatures of both employees and customers. And he's got the janitorial crew busy wiping down everything with disinfectant. As opposed to an out-and-out stay-home order, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts issued what he calls six rules to keep Nebraska healthy, rules that are set to expire on April 30th. 
The rules include stay home whenever possible, no non-essential errands, shop alone, and only shop once a week. But Ricketts says that although he has spoken to the mall owner, he did not tell him no, only that all the stores and the mall itself would have to follow his guidelines, his six rules. Ricketts would not say if mall shopping was essential or not and would not acknowledge the disconnect between his six rules and the mall's plan to reopen. Quoting the manager of one of the stores in the mall, there's been absolutely no regard to Nebraska Crossing's employees. None of us signed up to be guinea pigs. A Republican congressman from Indiana says he's willing to let more Americans die to save the economy. Trey Hollingsworth told an Indianapolis radio audience, it is the policymakers' decision to put on our big boy and big girl pants and say it is the lesser of two evils, and we intend to move forward in that direction. It's an ethical preference we've heard before from Republicans. Last month, it was Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying senior citizens should be willing to risk their lives to preserve the economy. Indiana's Trey Hollingsworth said this week, it's always the American government's decision to say, in the choice between the loss of our way of life and the loss of life, we have to always choose the latter. Pastor Gerald Glenn of the New Deliverance Evangelistic Church in Richmond, Virginia, kept open his church doors, vowing to preach until he was, quote, in jail or the hospital. On March 22nd, he showed off his congregation on video, telling worshipers to stand up to prove their numbers. He preached that day that he believed God was bigger than the virus and that he was proud of being controversial, and he declared that he was an essential worker. Pastor Gerald Glenn died on Easter Sunday from COVID-19. His daughter is now advising everyone to stay home. Just before Easter, Kansas Democratic Governor Laura Kelly expanded her stay-home order to ban large gatherings, including church services. There, too, clueless pastors had forged ahead with services, and at least three of the coronavirus deaths in Kansas have been traced to religious services. But the Kansas legislature is still controlled by Republicans, and last Wednesday they overturned Governor Kelly's order to throw open the church doors in time for Easter. But it was not to be. The governor took the Republican lawmakers to court, and the Kansas State Supreme Court struck down the Republicans' move, calling it shockingly irresponsible. Now 25% of the Sunflower State's coronavirus outbreaks have been linked to religious services. More than a dozen of our states exempt churches from their stay-home rules. A pastor in Sacramento got hate mail last week that included the warning that he would burn in hell if he opened his church for Easter. History will be made next month when the United States Supreme Court, for the first time ever, will hear arguments through a live video hookup. And for the first time in history, and this is huge, the news media will be allowed to live stream audio from those proceedings, an idea previous Supreme Courts had resisted. And the High Court will hear some urgent and vitally important cases on that audio link, including Trump's appeal of the subpoenas for his financial records, including his tax returns. And the rulings on these cases are expected to come before the November presidential election. The court will also rule on whether states can require electoral college delegates to cast their presidential ballots based on the popular vote, and whether religion-based employers can opt out of the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, meanwhile, continues her essential physical fitness regimen at age 87. 
After railing against Senate Democrats in yesterday's TV appearance for blocking some of his nominations, Donald Trump threw out another threat. He's threatening to force both houses of Congress to adjourn during the shutdown so he can fill vacancies in his administration with what are known as recess appointments. The vast majority of these vacancies are positions that Trump himself had vacated and positions he's failed to fill for years. Although lawmakers are sheltered at home, they have not officially adjourned. They are in recess, making it impossible for Trump to get any of his nominees confirmed. Here again, this has never been done before, but there is a power granted to the president by the Constitution that allows him to shut down Capitol Hill if House and Senate leaders cannot agree on an adjournment date. As of last night, no congressional leader, Democrat or Republican, had responded to Trump's threat. Trump's power may not be absolute, but it's adaptable. With all the coronavirus news, there was room this week for one other very big story. Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Joe Biden, followed by an endorsement by Barack Obama, followed by an endorsement from Elizabeth Warren. The two most progressive voices in this year's Democratic primary race, Warren and Sanders, had thrown their support to the establishment candidate. Sanders went so far as to call irresponsible any of his supporters who might be tempted to avoid voting this fall or tempted to vote for Trump, as many of them did in 2016. He may have some luck with this. Sanders appears more enthusiastic about the nominee this time and speaks to his most ardent supporters more sternly. And only 15% of Sanders supporters have said it's Bernie or bust on Election Day. With this strong endorsement, Sanders has earned a seat at the table and has clearly won concessions from Joe Biden on policy. With that progressive versus moderate fight behind us now, Obama felt free to chime in as Joe Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee. In fact, Obama may have had a lot to do with Sanders' decision to drop out and to give his former opponent a full-throated endorsement. Obama's reportedly spoken with Sanders four times in long conversations in recent weeks. We can only guess at what he said. Sanders refused to say, telling MSNBC's Chris Hayes, they're private conversations, waving away the question with his hand in that Larry David as Bernie Sanders way. Virginia's governor this week signed new legislation to make Election Day a state holiday there and to ditch the requirement for a photo ID in order to vote and to expand early voting to 45 days prior to Election Day, no reason necessary. Election Day is already a holiday in Delaware, Hawaii, Kentucky, and New York. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam says he was proud to make it so in his state to uphold the right to vote and to replace the state holiday honoring Civil War Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Lee Jackson Day in Virginia is history. It commemorates a lost cause, said Northam, adding, it's time to move on. With Bernie backing Biden and with other left-wing Democrats willing to do the same and without Hillary Clinton on the ballot, Democrats are starting to feel more optimistic about 2020 there has been less visible animosity between Biden and Sanders than there was between Sanders and Clinton. Democrats need no longer fear a contested convention. The Trump campaign can no longer use the liberal versus moderate split among Democrats as a divide-and-conquer tactic. And for the first time in 16 years, Democrats have their nominee in April, leaving an unusually long six months for campaigning. Biden's yet-to-be-chosen running mate remains a card he can play at just the right time. And if he's smart, he'll choose just the right running mate.
He has some excellent choices. Republicans in the key swing state of Wisconsin are reportedly nervous now that their insistence on primary voting during a shutdown last week is widely viewed as yet another Republican effort at voter suppression. Democrats got the last laugh, though, as the liberal they were backing won a seat on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, unseating the conservative justice backed by Republicans. Democrats still expect a close race this November. They know they're up against a solid, immovable base of Trump supporters in the key swing states. But they're also keeping their eyes and their campaign ads focused on Trump's mishandling of the virus crisis. Joe Biden, meanwhile, remains the candidate Trump has feared the most in terms of a threat to his reelection. So much so, he asked Ukraine for the favor of digging up dirt on Joe Biden, who Bernie calls a decent person and a great human being. Elizabeth Warren called Biden a good man. And she told Rachel Maddow last night that if asked to be Joe Biden's running mate, she would accept. The return of the animals, why Trump doesn't have a radio show, and life at home without pants in the final segment after this. I know a lot of people are understandably watching every penny during this crisis. I'm happy to produce this podcast for everyone, not just those who can afford to contribute. But if you're able to help in this independent journalism effort, please click on the PayPal donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. You may need some things you can't go out for. You may need books or music or movies in our isolation. Well, there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. Whatever you do and however you do it, thank you. Trump still has a few tricks up his sleeve, of course. One of them is denying money to the United States Postal Service just as more Americans prepare to vote by mail in this pandemic. The crisis has financially crippled the Postal Service, but the Trump administration is refusing financial aid while heaping, for example, $25 billion on the airline industry. The Postmaster General says the pandemic has caused an unprecedented drop in mail, especially the junk mail that helps the Postal Service pay its bills. Certainly fewer people are going to the post offices now, and the Postal Service has had to acquire its own personal protective supplies. As of Monday, 700 of its workers had tested positive and several had died. The Postal Service is expected to run out of cash by the end of the fiscal year in September without help from Congress. Trump, of course, prefers to blame the owner of the Washington Post, who also owns Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I am right, he tweeted, about the Amazon costing the post office massive amounts of money for being their delivery boy. He wrote that in 2018 as the Russia investigation appeared to be closing in on him with a complete play-by-play in Bezos' newspaper. And yes, he did say, the Amazon. Trump now says the blame for the Postal Service shortfall lands on the Postal Service itself for not charging Amazon more. And he says he has no intention of bailing out a service that's existed longer than the federal government itself, especially as we approach our biggest vote-by-mail election ever. Last week, Trump declared vote-by-mail corrupt and ripe for fraud. He did this using all caps for the fraud accusation. What he did not do was provide any evidence to back up his claim. But Trump's view clashes with his own Republican National Committee, and that's rare. 
the RNC sent out campaign mailers across Pennsylvania declaring voting by mail is an easy, convenient, and secure way to cast your ballot. Protect yourself from large crowds on Election Day. Republican leaders at the state level are also pushing vote by mail in spite of Trump's personal and unsubstantiated complaints about it. Vote by mail has been pushed by Republican governors and secretaries of state in Georgia, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Ohio. It's perfectly in character for the Republican Party, which has been pushing absentee voting for decades. Democrats, meanwhile, have been to court to protect those rules in Florida and Georgia, and they have sent out similar mailers through the U.S. Postal Service. Could peace be a byproduct of the world pandemic shutdown? French President Emmanuel Macron says he has the support of the U.S., the U.K., and China on a worldwide ceasefire during the crisis. And Macron believes he can also get the backing of Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose country is also being ravaged by the virus. All four nations participate in or back military fighting across the globe. That may soon virtually stop for a while. In this shutdown, air pollution has dropped by as much as 30% in our northeastern cities. The Northeast has been locked down for more than two weeks now, and many businesses are long closed. Fewer cars, fewer taxis, and fewer trucks. The latest measurements from NASA show nitrogen oxide concentrations at their lowest level in 15 years in the Northeast. Nitrogen oxide is a way to measure the toxins in the air that are man-made, and nitrogen oxide levels, therefore, are an ideal way to measure our effect on the ozone layer. In Los Angeles, they measure both NO2 and PM2.5, a measure of the particulate matter that causes heart and lung problems. LA's PM is down by 25%. Air pollution is also down substantially in Italy. Experts believe the reduction in air pollution in China has saved far more lives than have been taken by COVID-19. We know that air pollution kills millions of people every year, including 100,000 in the U.S., with heart and lung diseases. And since COVID-19 is a lung disease, the virus claims more victims with the help of air pollution. The Trump administration this week said it would not tighten the rules for particulate pollution from the burning of oil, wood, and coal. It moves through the air with the greatest of ease, that's one of the discoveries revealed this week about COVID-19. A new study from MIT confirms that the virus can hang in the air for hours, but also that it can be projected as far as 27 feet by a cough or a sneeze. What scientists have yet to learn is whether we catch the virus from the tiny droplets that sail through the air or the larger droplets that land on the surfaces we touch. Or both. The U.S. National Academy of Sciences agrees with a study out of China. The virus may not go away in summer, like most cold and flu infections. The Chinese study focused on 224 pandemic cities across China and found that the number of cases did not seem to change with increased sunlight, heat, or humidity. But summer sunshine also boosts our vitamin D levels, which also boosts our immune systems. And kids are less likely to carry and spread the virus when they're not in school. After the struggle to locate and acquire ventilators, we may not need as many as we thought. Around the world, some doctors are not using the breathing machines, fearing those machines may do more harm than good. Most patients on ventilators don't survive. 
One theory is the machines are applying too much pressure to the lungs, forcing the virus into the walls of the lungs. Many doctors are having greater success by turning the patient onto their stomachs. And researchers at Harvard Medical School report another possible side effect from COVID-19, pain in the testicles. They say it's rare, but that testicular pain has appeared more than once in coronavirus patients. A 42-year-old man self-admitted complaining of a stabbing pain. It was at the hospital he learned he'd also contracted COVID-19. There's no science behind any of this yet, except that testicular pain is a known side effect of other viruses. At the beach, endangered turtles are having their best year in decades now that the people are gone. Birds are chirping on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. A coyote was spotted wandering across the virtually deserted Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. There are peacocks on the streets of Brazil. Deer have overtaken the lawn of a housing development in East London. A mountain lion was spotted sleeping in a tree on Pearl Street in the heart of the University District in Boulder, Colorado. Wild boar roam the avenues of Barcelona now. Mountain goats have taken to the streets in a town in Wales. And whales are finally getting to use the shipping lanes normally kept busy by humans. For one moment in time, because of the pandemic among humans, the animals are back. Except for the rats. Many stores and restaurants closed. There's not enough wasted food in the streets to sustain the rats who live in the alley. It's gotten so desperate, rats have taken to death battles and cannibalism including eating their young. Suburban rats are getting fed as much as always, and maybe a bit more. But city rats from New York to New Orleans are starving and going crazy in their quest for sustenance. They're putting out poisoned bait for the rats in the Big Easy and in Washington, D.C. Experts say we don't have to worry about the rats turning on us. But you know we will. The first launch by the new U.S. Space Force has been delayed to keep the launch crew socially distanced. The launch of a GPS satellite, first set for later this month, has been postponed to at least June 30th, quote, in the interest of national security. In this age of texting and messaging, the lowly phone call is making a comeback in this period of isolation. Mother's Day is typically the busiest day of the year for AT&T. This year, the lockdown has dusted that number with twice as many calls per day as on the last Mother's Day. Internet traffic, as you would have guessed, is also up by as much as 25%. MGM is now under a judge's order to turn over unaired footage from the Donald Trump TV show Celebrity Apprentice. Plaintiffs are suing Trump and his offspring Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr. for allegedly scamming them to invest in a multi-level marketing company. But the case could get even more interesting since that unaired video allegedly includes insensitive comments from the president. The New York Times reports Trump flirted early last month with the idea of having his own daily two-hour radio show. That's how he reportedly explained it in the White House Situation Room to stunned aides. It would be a call-in show, he said, an open line for people to chat one-on-one with their president as he trudges through an attempt to get reelected. Trump changed his mind about the radio show that same day, reports the Times, after he realized, to the dismay of stunned aides, that his show would be competing with Medal of Freedom winner Rush Limbaugh. When AIDS suggested he do it on Saturdays, Trump declined. He's not a morning person. He 
prefers golf on Saturdays, and he spends his evenings watching the so-called Fox News Channel. So this month, Trump got a new TV show instead that airs after Limbaugh's daily radio show has ended. With the class of 2020 deprived of commencement ceremonies, at least there will be inspiring commencement speeches. Some big names are lined up for iHeartRadio's commencement with speeches by Hillary Clinton, John Legend, Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, Ryan Seacrest, Stephanie Rule, Katie Couric, Sienna Miller, Eli Manning, Pitbull, and Tim McGraw. The speeches will air via podcast and on iHeart stations around the country. The coronavirus also means no more corona beer. The Mexican company that brews it has shut down production to comply with pandemic orders from its own government. Corona is among the brewers and distillers now using their alcohol to make hand sanitizers. The American brands are still brewing with beer and liquor sales up 34% over this time last year. Pittsburgh TV station KDKA set the ball in motion when it aired a shot of 93-year-old Olive Veronese looking out her window holding a can of Coors Light with a sign that read, Need More Beer. A fellow beer lover posted the video on Twitter. It went viral, and Coors tweeted back, The beer is on its way. New Jersey is out with an inventory of its two last beach cleanups over the last 12 months. Officials are pleased to report that although there's still way too much of it, they had to pick up less plastic and fewer balloons this year, fewer straws and plastic bags. But the new beach litter is vaping cartridges. The cigarette butts and plastic cigar tips remain as well, along with candy wrappers. Now the fun part. They also found some fake vampire teeth, a coconut, an onion, a turkey baster, a pregnancy test kit, and a pair of boxer shorts. They found credit and debit cards and a $6,000 diamond engagement ring they were able to return to its owner. This year, volunteers picked up well over 7 million pieces of litter from New Jersey's 127-mile shoreline, including a bag of cremated human remains. Oh, and on the subject of recycling, an Ontario recycling company is reminding its customers not to try to recycle their old pots and pans, bakeware, chains, extension cords, nuts and bolts, and swords. They found an ornate sword in one of those blue recycling bins. Quoting a company statement, just because something's made of metal does not mean it's acceptable for the blue box. The company says these items, especially swords, jam up the processing equipment and, quote, risk injury for our employees. That was no bucket of bolts that made it from a parking garage in midtown Manhattan to a hotel parking lot in Redondo Beach, California in less than 27 hours. That was a white 2019 Audi A8L sedan with extra fuel tanks and a three-person crew that remains anonymous. With traffic down 90% in the cities and 50% on the highways, that car averaged more than 100 miles an hour, averaged 100 for nearly 3,000 miles in under 27 hours. The recently broken cannonball run record has already been broken. Quoting the driver, it's amazing how fun it is to drive on the highways right now. It's like having an American Autobahn. But because this pandemic is a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, it's likely a record never to be broken. In the meantime, all over the country, tickets for speeding are up. The California Highway Patrol reports a big increase in tickets for driving over 100 miles an hour. But they didn't catch this one. The money was gone in almost 60 seconds after Charles Calvin of New Chicago, Indiana, found an extra deposit in his checking account of 
$8.2 million. He discovered it at an ATM when he went to withdraw 200 bucks. He decided to check his balance while he was at it. His stimulus check had arrived along with an unidentified additional deposit of 8.2 mil. The bank error in his favor has since been corrected. Quoting Charles, you go from being a millionaire one second and back to being broke again. There are so many stories of pain and kindness during this pandemic. In Tybee Island, Florida, in Tybee Island, Florida, a Georgia beach town mentioned here last week, a bar owner has found a way to pay her employees through this crisis. She removed from the wall all of the $1 bills customers had signed and tacked up on the wall over the last 15 years. She saw the writing on the wall after she had sent home her employees in the shutdown. It took her three days to remove all of those $1 bills and to count all 3,714 of them. That cash, plus the donations that are still coming in, have allowed her to keep her people on the payroll while they stay safe at home. We all find different ways to pass the time during the shutdown. In Utah, a man's trying to get in the Book of World Records with his collection of board games. He owns about 2,000 board games, but says he's only played about 2% of them. He'll have a little time now to play some more board games in case he gets bored. And finally, those of us who work at home have gotten more casual, maybe too casual. From the home office in Florida, a Fort Lauderdale judge has asked the lawyers taking part in his video-linked hearings to get dressed as though they were actually appearing in his courtroom. Broward County Circuit Judge Dennis Bailey wrote an open letter just published in the local Bar Association newsletter. He notes in the letter that putting on a beach cover-up won't cover up that you're poolside in a bathing suit. He says jeans and a t-shirt don't cut it either, asking lawyers to show some respect. He says one male attorney showed up on Zoom shirtless and that one female attorney made her motions from beneath the covers of her bed. Many of us aren't even wearing pants, at least not the proper pants anyway. In Taneytown, Maryland, police posted an unusual warning on Facebook and they seem to have someone specific in mind. Please remember, they said, to put pants on before leaving the house to check your mailbox. You know who you are. This is your final warning. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.